Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA On The Go. Hi, everyone. I feel um, so happy to be in conversation today with um, the inspirational Dr. Natalie Beck Aguilera, a professor of social work with expertise in the fields of juvenile justice, youth mental health, um, and substance abuse treatment, um, who really has uh, a passion for family-based services for young people, um, as well as um, breaking the school to prison pipeline. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And I'd love to just kick it off by inviting you to share a little bit about your background and maybe how you came to be so passionate about the importance of effective family engagement for folks who are working with youth. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me and reaching out. i delighted to be here talking to y'all. Um, like you mentioned, uh, I was a direct practice social worker for 10 years in the juvenile justice system, in schools, and in substance use treatment programs. And throughout working across these youth serving systems, um, I noticed a really a lack of systemic engagement with families. Uh, there's this tendency to just focus on the youth because the youth is the identified client and it's a youth serving system, right? Um, but this was in contrast to, to what I learned, um, about systems theory, which is that, you know, everybody is within their context, right? Every, everything operates within their larger system and especially children. Um, they don't have a lot of control, uh, of things in the larger system, right? Um, and it was also, um, in contrast to, to the literature. So I started doing some research on it throughout my doctoral program. Um, because of what I was seeing around me, I wanted to see how it matched up or not with the literature. And the literature really promotes family involvement. And then it also was in contrast to my practice, because when I was engaging families, the kiddos were getting better faster and, um, you know, the whole family was getting better. So it was the way the systems were set up and are set up um, really seemed in conflict to a lot of things. So in spite of um, my lack of training on this, or maybe because of my lack of training, I pushed for more family engagement throughout my career in these systems. So when I was in my, uh, my master's program for social work, I had one families class. And then in both of my internships, I had one family session. So it was really minimal, the training that I had. And I think that is part of the issue is this lack of training. And actually, that's not even a required class in the social work program anymore. It's it's an elective. So I feel like we're going the wrong direction as far as preparation and training. So now that I'm a professor, I'm trying to better prepare future and current practitioners to work with families. Um, And also, I I continue to work directly with families. So... um, even though I'm, you know, teaching full time now for the last couple of years, I still do have a couple of clients. And actually, currently, my referrals are coming from the CPS reintegration project. So working with very similar families that uh, that y'all are working with. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's awesome. I definitely had at least one young person and family on a case um, back in the day where we really benefited from um, services through that program. So that's really cool to know about that connection. Awesome. Well, when you train or, or when you're teaching about family engagement, um, what are some of the barriers that practitioners point to, barriers to um, engaging effectively with families? 
Yeah, I think the easiest one to point to is the family barriers, right? It's easy for us as practitioners to say, well, they're the reason, right? And it's true. There are definitely, families definitely have barriers, right? So, so um, you know, concrete, like, everyday barriers like childcare and transportation and time, right? If we're trying to engage families, parents are often working. And so that's a big thing we've got to, we've got to work around. So, the, so there's um, just logistical barriers with families. And then there's also sometimes attitudinal barriers with families, right? Especially families that are sent to us by systems that they're not particularly fond of, right? They haven't chosen to engage with us. Um, that can bring, and maybe they've had some bad experiences in the past with practitioners like us or with the systems that can bring some hesitancy and some resistance on their part. Um, so that's easy, easy to point to. And that's what a lot of practitioners try to point to is like, well, that's why it's not happening. But I also argue, and I've also seen in my time that there are some practitioner barriers as well. So we have some attitudes about engaging families, right? It's difficult logistically, like I said, um, but it's also difficult, um, when we open up, uh, the space for more people, right? It's it's easier if we're just working with one little person, right? With just the issues of one little person and the, you know, whatever they have to say, that's easy enough. But when we open it up to the whole family, now we've got a lot of stuff going on. Maybe we've got some intergenerational issues going on, right? It makes it a lot more complex. And, and, um, and I think some practitioners don't feel prepared to do that. Like I said, my preparation was pretty little, my formal preparation. And so they just don't. Um, also, um, I, I do encounter a lot of, of parent blaming in child serving systems, right? We're very loyal to our clients and we, we really like our clients. And so we kind of feel like someone's got to blame for the issues. You know, someone's got to take the blame for the issues they're going through. And parents are an easy target to blame. And so when we really ally with the kids, and I'm not saying we shouldn't ally with the kids, but I feel like that's an easy scapegoat for the problems is to blame the parents. And that kind of distance us from really working with the family closely as when we have those attitudes and those uh, biases. And then there's also systemic barriers. So like I said, the systems that we work in are youth serving systems, but not necessarily family serving systems. So things like billing, what we can bill for, right? When I worked in one of the systems, um, I couldn't bill for just talking to the parent. I had to uh, have the child in the room if I was able to bill. Well, that makes it really complicated because um, not everything needs to be said in front of the child, right? So if I, there's a conversation that I need to have with just the parents, um, I couldn't have that and have it count toward my productivity, which is a really um, difficult situation to put a practitioner in. Also things like turnover and wait lists and hours of operation, right? All of those are kind of systemic barriers that keep families out. So kind of all the levels of, of barriers. Yeah, there's so much in what I'm hearing you say that really just stands out to me as being so relevant to our work with families. Um, just thinking about the barriers that, that some of our parents may face around like transportation or their work schedules or access to daycare, which you mentioned um, those kind of logistical barriers, access to the services that we're asking them, you know, that the court is asking them to participate in. And in a lot of parts of our state, those services may not even be available anywhere near the family. Um, and then just thinking about what you're saying about attitude is really um, like a two-way street. Like we, you do hear practitioners like really, you know, taking issues sometimes with the, with the 
parents' attitude if they feel like they're really closed off or antagonistic and just remembering like, well, our attitude, the attitude we're bringing also is a huge factor in kind of the chemistry and the rapport that's able to be built or not in the situation. Right. And that's the only attitude we can control, right? We can't control their attitude. We can only control our own. Yeah. And especially considering the power dynamic that's at play here, where um, thinking about CASA volunteers were um, folks who, you know, are being given this really powerful um, level of influence over what, what, you know, how this case might unfold for this family and um, what the, you know, what the outcome may be for these parents and their kids. Um, and so just really keeping in mind how that power dynamic is influencing um, how the parent may see their interactions with us. And then also what you were saying about, um, I can't remember how you put it, but just thinking about, oh, families who um, may not have a positive view <laughs> towards the system. And that's certainly true, I think, for any family when it comes to CPS. I think we need to be particularly sensitive to how the system in you know historically has um, treated uh, families of color. And so really keeping in mind that dynamic as well and, and how we need to be um, bring like a justice mindset um, to our work as well. So just a couple of things, everything you were saying is just like really like um, sending off lots of like connections in my mind. Um, and what you said as well about where we place the blame. So it, yeah, I mean, certainly we, the, you know, I think a central goal of our, of our child welfare system is to try to um, like, for, for there to be accountability for parents and to help them overcome safety issues that have presented. Um, but we also need to be aware of how our wider like societal systems may be um, like to blame for some of the struggles, um, especially for the families that we work with who are living in poverty and trying to make ends meet and, and, <laughs> survive and thrive as a family living in poverty? Um, and what does safety look like? Does safety also include access to health care for parents and children and, and all these other things that really have a huge impact on people's lives and the choices that they're able to make? So um, thank you so much for bringing all of that up. Um, so you have a game that you've invented called the reframe game to kind of help us examine our attitudes like you were talking about. Um, and I'd love to play a few rounds together and maybe we can kind of pause and give listeners a chance to play along as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So just like you said, um, as practitioners, we really need to build an alliance with the family and um, explore their perspectives on what's going on with the family, their daily stressors, and the practical barriers that we talked about. And that can lead to engaged attitudes and behaviors from the family. So it really all starts with us looking at ourselves and looking at what we can do. And so that's the point of this reframe game is to kind of focus on our attitudes and see if uh, how we can adjust them if needed. So Basically, what I did is I came up with some um, some phrases that I've heard people um, say about families, negative phrases. Um, and what I challenge people to do is to reframe them, which is to look at them in a more positive light, to find another way to look at the same situation that's that's more positive. 
Um, so for example, works too much. I've definitely heard practitioners complain about parents. They're always working. That's why they can't get them in and that it's a bad thing that they work too much. Ooh, okay. I'm going to think about that for a second. Give folks at home a chance to, to think of how they would reframe that. Uh, well, I think certainly it's a positive if someone's, um, like that sounds like a hardworking person to me who is really doing their best to provide for their family. Exactly, Margaret. That's exactly what I'm thinking is, yeah, and we could we could be upset with them for working too much or we could really see that as a strength, as hardworking, right? As really dedicated to their family and not use that as something to take away from them, right? But it's really something to build on. Hey, they, they are, they're motivated in this area, right? How can we... How can we use that and build on that? Exactly. Um, how about this one? They only talk about themselves. So you get them in a family session and now they're just talking about themselves. They're not talking about the kiddo anymore. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, it might be that that parent or that family member is really focused on how of getting people to understand what the situation that they're in um, and uh, and trying to, to help to to get their needs met so that they can um, get their child back in their care. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, they express their needs because we get upset when we don't know what's going on with them. Right. So we want them to express their needs. And that's going to be the only way that we can help them is if they um, if they are able to express their needs. And that's something that is um, is found in the research, too, is that we need to um, be willing to talk about adult issues. So even though we are a child serving system, we can't pretend that the parents we work with are only parents, right? That's one role that they play, but they have a lot of other roles in their lives. And so when we, when we don't let them talk about adult issues, when we only let them talk about their child, right, it's really limiting. And so I think this is a great example of, of us kind of changing our frame of reference and saying, well, they are letting us know what they need and they are a human outside of being a parent, right? And they, they do have needs and that's okay. And that's something we can work on and help with. Yeah. Um, so on the flip side, I've heard people complain that families only reach out during a crisis. So they can't get them to reach out unless things are really, really bad. Mm. Well, I think that's something many of us can relate to. Um, like I think, um, there's a lot of different ways to go with all of these and with this one too, like, um, that might be coming from a sense of pride, which pride can be a strength and it can be a barrier as well, or a, like a drive to, um, like, uh, put all the burden on yourself to like, you know, get, get your family through a crisis until you literally, until you kind of hit rock bottom, but just that it may be coming from a strength of wanting to be able to carry the load. Sure. Yeah. Self-reliance, or maybe they have other um, strategies for coping until it gets to the crisis, right? Maybe they're using other coping strategies before the crisis. Um, and the thing we can focus on in this one is that they are willing to ask for help when they need it most, right? That's a great thing that they're reaching out to us in crisis. That's when we want them, right? And also crisis theory tells us that that is an opportune time for change, right? People are willing to make changes when they're in crisis that they may not be able or willing to make 
at other times, right? When crisis tells us that this is not going to work, we can't keep doing this. And so people are a lot more open to change. So we can take that and run with it, right? They are reaching out to us in a crisis. They may be more willing to change right now than ever. Let's not reject them because they're only reaching out for a crisis, right? Let's not complain about that. Let's take it and run with it. Wow, I love that. Um, you want to do one more? Sure. Okay, this is one that I hear thrown out all the time, and I may have said it earlier too. Resistant. The family oh, is man. resistant. Okay, that's broad. It's a catch-all. It is. It is, and we use it a lot. Um. Okay, so I'm trying to think of reframing this to be a strength. Um. You know, maybe um, that resistance could come out of, like, a sense of, um, like, um, I guess not wanting to, like, have to change things about their lives that they really value. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I'm hearing you um, connect to there is maybe they don't understand the value of this program or it's a mismatch for their values, right? And that's definitely something as practitioners we need to explore with them. They may not understand what we're trying to do and why, and 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 it you know they may perceive it as a mismatch. So that's a great that's a great point. Um, for this one, I also say cautious, right? So um, if if you believe everything you hear, or you know everybody that said I'm here to help you, right right away, um, you're gonna get scammed. So people that are cautious, right, and they they step back and they take a minute and they take it all in, right, also not a bad skill. And so just like we were saying with people who've had bad experiences, especially, of course, they're going to be resistant, quote unquote, right? They're going to take a minute and say, wait a second, let's see what's going on here before I jump all the way in. That makes sense. That's a self-protection thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you put it that way. Like just thinking like, well, what's another way we can think about that? What's another word that might, um, yeah. Sometimes I think we do jump to, um, kind of these negative terms when, um, if we can find other words, uh, just for ourselves in the, in the way that we're thinking about the family members that we're working with, when we bump up against some kind of resistance to help ourselves kind of pause or maybe for Casas to kind of like call up their supervisor and say, like, I feel like, you know, mom, you know, is being really resistant to me. Can you help me talk through what's a, is there another way to look at this that I'm not? like seeing because I'm in my because I'm like kind of reacting to this. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, such a great point. Um, we get very emotionally close to the situation, right? And get very attached to the kiddos as we should, right? But then it do, it can kind of cloud our judgment. And so really um, being that self-aware and reaching out outside of ourselves um, is super helpful. And like you're saying, just catch how we're talking about ourselves, about things in our head or even out loud to other, you know, other peers, other staff members. I've definitely heard a lot of, you know, parent bashing going on at, you know, agencies. And I get it, right? It's a frustrating job. It can be very challenging. But I firmly believe that the way that we talk about someone, even when they're not in front of us, right, affects the way we treat them. So I don't think we can sit there and trash a family and trash a family and then turn around and be like, hi, how's it going? And, you know, it's not it's not going to translate. Even we even if we think we're the best faker, right? It's just 
it's still there in us, right? And so if we want to have a positive relationship, we need to have that self-awareness and think, have other ways to think about things and change our mentality. It's going to change the way we, we interact with them. Yeah, I love what you're saying. I think that's a spiritual lesson for all of us in this work and beyond this work, just in our lives about kind of like that level of integrity and, and how we treat people. And I think that really has an impact when we're working with families, um, in the child welfare system. And it really, what you said reminded me of a phrase that I've heard Kevin Campbell use, which is saying words create worlds. And so what are the words that we're using, you know, whether that's in talking to our supervisor or the attorney ad litem, or just in our own mind, the narrative that we're creating about a family, what world is that creating um, that we're then acting from in our advocacy? Absolutely. And I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. In fact, the other day I had a a wraparound meeting and I was frustrated with this mom for not showing up to her sessions. Right. And I was getting ready to say my frustration and then mom showed up in the meeting and all of a sudden my tone changed and my words changed. And I'm like, see, that should show me that I need to be speaking this way all the time, even if mom's not in the meeting. Right. It was a real aha moment for me because my tones flipped instantly. And I was like, well, there you go. I just caught myself that I was going to talk differently about mom if she wasn't there. And that's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we can relate to that. Even in the way that we document our advocacy and our contact with people, we always want to document, you know, thinking like, I want to write this as if the person I'm writing about might one day see this if these records were to be, you know, um, I don't know, what's the word, like subpoenaed or, you know, brought into the... um, the the, brought to court um at some point so just bringing that level of care always is so important awesome well um something you mentioned as you were talking earlier is like um you said like this shows up in the research too are there other things like other kind of like pieces of wisdom from your research um that might be helpful for us to hear about how to effectively engage with families yeah absolutely um and they're, they're pretty common sense, but they make me feel good in that they're supported by the literature. So first one is um, simple reminders of upcoming meetings um, is an effective way of increasing attendance. So I know for, um, you know, doctor's appointments and things like that, it's very normal now to get reminders, right? And they have these fancy automated systems that do it for them. So I've heard practitioners be like, hey, I don't have the time, right? I don't have the fancy automated system. If they show up, they show up. If they don't, they don't. That's not my job. And I hear that and I get it. It's one more thing to do a reminder, right? But in order for us to do our job, the parent has to show up. So we can take the five seconds to send a text or, you know, make a phone call or whatever, or we can gamble, but at the same time, if they're relying on reminders for every other appointment in their lives, and this is the only appointment they don't get a reminder from, right, we're kind of setting ourselves up. So um, simple reminders can increase attendance. Um, Another thing is broadening our definition of family. So sometimes we just focus on biological family, we just focus on biological parents. Um, but we really have to think broader than that and really let the family members determine who is critical to their successful involvement um, and recognize that some family is chosen, right? Not all family is biological. And so it could be a neighbor, right? I had a student who read her trauma narrative to a teacher one time that she was really close to. So 
really letting them decide and letting them determine, you know, who they want to be a part of this, those those natural supports that we always talk about. Because we don't want to be in their lives forever. We don't want the system to be in their lives forever, right? We want those people to be in their lives forever. That's who um, we're trying to build up to be that natural support system so that when we leave, there's there's a support system intact. And so we have to think beyond a biological family, I think. And like I said, the, the research backs that up as well. And then, like I said earlier, just frequently discussing adult issues, right? Whether it's attitudes towards services, whether it's financial concerns, marital concerns, work concerns, we have to provide a space to care about the parent as a parent. And then they're going to buy into whatever else we're trying to do for their kid. But we have to show that we care about them as an individual and not just their kid. Um, So that means making room for what they want to talk about. And like I said, maybe all of that is not appropriate in front of the kid, and that's okay. So maybe we need to make some space where the kid's not there, where we're just talking with the parent. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think that really that rests on our ability to build trust with parents because it's really hard for any of us to talk about like, well, I'm, things are very stressful in, you know, in my life financially or in my relationship right now. And that's, you know, really impacting my mental health or whatever it is that we might need help and support addressing with people who we don't have a sense of trust or we don't feel like they, um, I don't know, are like invested in in seeing us succeed. And so I think that just circles back to that importance of building trust. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying about like the importance of just like reminding people about meetings or broadening the, the, um, our thinking about who might be important to be at family meetings. I love that so much because I know when I, you know, used to, um, be a CASA supervisor, I really wish that that's something that I had better understood back then. Like family meetings are such a powerful space for, um, for like the work to get done of helping, of supporting parents and family members and, and trying to find ways to solve and address the problems that they've been experiencing. But if we just assume that someone else is um, like that, the family that the meeting facilitator, the caseworker is doing all that of like reminding them or or reaching out in the first place, which they very well may be. But we also know those folks are super busy and, um, you know, not by not because they don't care, but sometimes things can fall through the cracks just because of that workload that they're carrying. And and that's part of why CASA exists in the first place is to try to, um, like be a positive, uh, presence in a space um, where things weren't lining up, you know, in in the child welfare system um, back in the day. That's where we came from. So um, I just love that invitation to think about how we can help um, make sure that people know about and are reminded about the meetings that exist to support them. Awesome. Um, And then something else that you talk about that I thought was really powerful is just the importance of that very first contact with the parent and setting the tone for how we're going to be working alongside them. Um, And you had some great like questions about like that um, advocates could ask during an initial contact with the parent. One of them was, when I get to know you better, what qualities and strengths will I admire about you as a parent? or maybe as a grandmother or as a grandfather, depending on who we're talking to. And that's really a question I wish I had had in my pocket and that I'd been asking parents when I was first introducing myself. Um, 
So how do you see it benefiting youth, like the, the children that we're here to serve, for CASA advocates to really invest in building these strengths-based working relationships with parents and family members right from the outset? Yeah, we we do a really good job in our systems of focusing on the negative, right? And that is all well documented and everywhere and everybody knows about it, but the positive not so much, right? And that negative is not super motivating for us to connect and be involved, right? If that's all we're hearing about. Um, and so, like I've been saying, a large literature supports the influence of the alliance with the practitioner on family engagement and retention. And so a positive strengths-based interactions builds the, that alliance. So families who experience a personal bond with the provider and a collaborative relationship for developing tasks and goals are more likely to remain engaged. So it is it starts with the beginning, but we're always working on buy-in, right? We're always working on engagement throughout the whole process. So it's not just the beginning, but that but we need to remember that it's it's the entire process. So maybe that's the first phone call before we even meet face to face, right? That's where it starts. That's where the engagement starts and it doesn't stop. Um, and so if we're always trying to engage, trying to build a positive collaborative relationship, then that is going to lead to or improve the likelihood of positive outcomes for the children as well as the families. So once again, the systems theory, right, says the child is part of that system. And so if the, you know, the caregiver gets better, the kid gets better and, and vice versa, right? We want that whole family to, to get better. And so, um, we're going to much be much more likely to develop that collaborative relationship and that working uh, alliance if we're using some strengths-based interactions to build it. Awesome. Yeah, great point. Awesome. Yeah, great point. Um, uh, yeah, you're so right. It is an ongoing process, and every single interaction that we have with parents and family members um, is one that can um, strengthen or um, take away from the relationship that we're building with them, the working relationship that we're building with them um, towards, you know, fulfilling the best interests of their children. Um, well, this has been such a wonderful discussion. I'm just so grateful to get to um, learn from your expertise. Are there any other kind of words of wisdom or strategies or tips about engaging effectively with families that you want to throw out there before we wrap up? Sure. I just want to um, reemphasize that whatever issue is affecting that kiddo is affecting the whole family. And like I said before, we're not designed to be in that kid's life forever, right? Our time with them is limited. So um, we're going to be much more effective in our efforts if we are focusing them on the family who is going to be there with that kiddo beyond when we are. Um, and then whole ser whole family services can influence many people with one intervention. I always say we get more bang from our, for our buck, right? If we work up with the whole family versus just one person, right? The time we invest, we're going to help a lot more people if we broaden our scope. Um, so that's what I really recommend is expanding your view of the identified client. I think that that is what gets us into this focus view on just the kid as we say, oh, well, that's the identified client, right? I think we need to expand that view. And, uh, you know, what if the family was the client? What if we said the family is the identified client and we focused our interventions um, and our efforts on what we can do that's best for the family instead of just that individual kiddo? How would that change our interactions and how would that change our systems? Because I think our systems can use a lot of work and a lot of pushing in this direction. And it's going to come from people like us doing that pushing, right? So in our individual interactions, but also on a systems level, how do we 
push towards having the family be the identified client instead of just the kiddo. Yeah, that's such an inspirational message for us as CASA advocates, as CASA staff, because we're literally appointed to serve, um, to advocate for the best interests of a child or children. Um, But what we know is that um, whenever safely possible, children have better outcomes on so many different levels when they are able to stay with, be returned to their families of origin. And so that's why it's so important that we are thinking of um, working alongside engaging that family, um, even though the language, you know, that we're appointed with is to advocate for the best interest of the child. We have to understand what, how that connects so deeply to working with the family. Exactly. We're playing the long game, right? We got to really think long term what's best for this kiddo. We got to we got to keep that in mind. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Honestly, I wish that I could um, secretly enroll in one of your classes and just continue to learn um, from you. But I just really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your work and your insights with our um, network. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It It was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.